Welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey and I am joined here today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca is going to be telling us all about the case of Albert DeSalvo and Nicole will be educating us on the science of of forensic hypnosis and how it played an instrumental role in his case. Uh, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are descriptions of sexual assault. And I will pass it on to Rebecca to tell us a bit about Albert DeSalvo and who he was and what he did. Great. Well, to start, um, Albert DeSalvo was born in 1931 in Massachusetts, uh, United States, not very far from Boston. And he was the third child of six children to Frank and Charlotte DeSalvo. Albert's experience with violence unfortunately started very early, as his father Frank was a very violent alcoholic who had frequently abused him, his siblings, and also his mother. Um, In 1940, when Albert was only nine years old, his father had sold Albert and two of his sisters to a farmer in Maine for only $9, which, uh, converted to today's dollars, is still only about 173 so not that much. Um, Wait, he's... He sold his sisters? Albert's father sold Albert and two of his sisters to a farmer. Yeah. Okay, I heard that Albert sold his sisters. Wow. Yeah. So all of them combined was $9? Yeah, not even each. Oh. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right, strong start. Yeah, so um, after they were sold to this farmer in Maine, they actually very quickly escaped and returned back home. Personally, I don't quite know why you would return home after your parents sold you, but I guess they were nine and had nowhere to go. So that makes sense. Um, After they had returned home, um, Albert's father, Frank, had brought Albert to a store to teach him how to properly shoplift and teach him what to take from a store when he does so. So great, great parenting right there. Uh, the abuse that they endured wasn't only emotional, as you would probably endure a lot of emotional pain from being sold by your family, um, but they were also physically abused. Frank would often abuse, uh, their mother Charlotte in front of the children, and there was one particularly graphic instance when Albert was only 11. His father had knocked out all of his mother's teeth, as well as broke all of her fingers one by one in front of all of the children. In addition... Uh, Frank would frequently bring home prostitutes, and he would uh, force his children to watch while he had sex with them. Albert had a really twisted home life. Didn't grow up good. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so obviously these incidences, as you guys have heard, would have been very traumatic to any child. Um, And this was really evident that it was very negatively impactful to Albert as he was convicted of his very first crime before he turned 13. Uh, Just before he was 13 in 1943, he was convicted of assault and battery committed against a 12-year-old paper boy. And as a result, they sentenced him to prison time. Uh, But instead of a prison, he was sent to the Lyman School for Boys, which is a reform school for young delinquents in Massachusetts. He was sent there in December of 1943, but he was released on parole for good behavior in October of 1944. 
after his... So he spent almost a year there? Yeah. Yeah, not For quite a year, but almost. Interesting. Yeah. So after his release, he... I found this a little bit of ir- ironic. After his release, he began working as a paper boy. Um, however, this crime-free lifestyle of uh, being a lawful paper boy didn't last long because he was soon sent back to the school uh, just a couple years later in August of 1946 because he stole an automobile. So, after being released the second time from the Lyman School of Boys, uh, after a couple years, he ended up enlisting in the army, and he was stationed in Germany for eight years, uh, just after World War II. During his time in Germany, he met a woman named Ermgard Beck, and he actually fell very in love with her. When this, uh, his time in Germany has, had finished, they were so in love that they decided to return to the United States together where they would start a life. So they got married in 1953, and they ended up having two children. Um, DeSalvo frequently demanded sex from his wife, um, sometimes up to five to six times a day. And when she denied it, instead of just accepting that she didn't want it, he would just go look elsewhere to satisfy himself. So that that's really slimy. It is. I agree. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So during one of these times that his wife denied it, uh, which she was perfectly allowed to, um, he went out looking for someone to satisfy him. And in 1956, uh, had molested a nine-year-old girl as a result of it. The young girl's mother didn't press charges because she feared the publicity that would come out of it and she didn't want her family negatively uh, affected, but he was honorably discharged from the army because of the accusations. I don't know why he was honorably discharged. Yeah, I was just going to ask, why wasn't he dishonorably discharged? Yeah, I. there was one source that said he was dishonorably discharged, but most of the sources said honorably that's super weird. I definitely would dishonorably discharge him. That's that's not honorable what he did. Yeah, not in the slightest. Um, so, Ermgard was pretty fed up, obviously, with DeSalvo's excessive demands. Uh, so she would frequently deny him. And after being frequently denied, um, he came up with a scheme, I suppose, a plot to get more women's attention, and he had called this his, um, sorry, he called himself the measuring man. So, Albert DeSalvo, throughout the years, had a couple crime nicknames. The first one was the measuring man. During the late 1950s, DeSalvo would hang around, uh, like, student hangout areas in Boston near the university and colleges, and he would seek out apartments that were occupied by young women. When he found these apartments, he would knock on their door holding a clipboard and he would tell any girl who answered the door that he was a representative for a modeling agency looking for new talent and he wanted to take some measurements of them because he thought they were a good fit. For the women that accepted and let him into their home, he would take their measurements and often um, touch them inappropriately, but he never did anything further. So it, it was sexual assault, but he wasn't... I don't know how to say this politely he he would touch them but he didn't go any further with it sometimes these women were clothed and sometimes they were naked but uh nonetheless when he finished taking their measurements he would simply get up and leave 
So in, on March 17th of 1960, after he'd been doing this for a few years now, he tried to break into a woman's home, but he actually got caught by police. Um, and when he was caught, he quickly confessed to being the measuring man and was sentenced to 18 months for those crimes. Uh, I believe he was charged with sexual uh, misdemeanor. And he was released after 11 months for good behavior. Unfortunately, following his arrest, um, apparently being arrested again didn't steer him away from crime because his crimes just got progressively more severe. After his release, DeSalvo took on a new identity, this time known as the Green Man. He would dress in green handyman clothes that, according to sources back in the day, a lot of, like, handyman and repairmen wore similar green, like, overalls, I suppose. Um, and wearing these, sometimes he would break in, and other times he would simply knock on the door. But when he did this, he would convince women to let them into their houses, and whichever way he got in, uh, he would proceed to tie the victims to their bed and sexually assault them. He would then apologize afterwards, oftentimes, and then he would leave. Um... It's so he knew what he was doing was wrong, and obviously felt bad about it, because otherwise he wouldn't have apologized, and yet he still continued. Yeah. Okay. Very gross. That's messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's believed to have actually broken into around 500 homes and sexually assaulted over 300 women all around New England in the United States. Holy smokes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Not all of these are confirmed, but this was the estimated count based on all of the descriptions he had given. That is so many. Mm Mm-hmm. So, in 1962, while he was still committing these crimes, um, unfortunately, uh, they got worse again, and he began killing his victims after sexually assaulting them. So... Between the years 1962 and 1964, DeSalvo went on to murder 13 women before he was inevitably caught. Going into um, the murder and sexual assaults of these victims, um, a lot of them were quite similar, but I still want to discuss each one a little bit. Um, His first victim, her name was Anna Slazers. She was a 55-year-old seamstress. She was on her way to a... Sorry, she wasn't on her way. She was supposed to be going to a church memorial service on the 14th of June in 1962. um, And her son was supposed to be going with her. So her son went to her apartment to pick her up. But unfortunately, when he arrived, he went in to get her. And he came across um, the first crime scene of what came to be known as the Boston Strangler. He came into her home and he found her lying naked on her kitchen floor uh, with the rope of her blue house coat tied very tightly around her neck Uh, in a neat bow under her neck, or under her chin. Um, There was also evidence at the scene when police arrived that she had been sexually assaulted. Only two weeks later, so on June 28th, another woman, whose name was Mary Mullen, she was 85, she was found dead in her home of a heart attack. Initially, to the police, it looked like a natural death, but a couple years later, when DeSalvo confessed to the crimes, he actually stated that she was a victim of his and that she had a heart attack as he started to attempt to strangle her. So I guess the fear caused the heart attack. Just two days later, uh, so two days after Mary Mullen, on June 30th, 68-year-old Nina Nichols was found deceased, this time with a nylon stocking tied around her neck in a bow, so similar to the first victim, and 
Also, like the first victim, there was evidence that she had been sexually assaulted, but this time with a wine bottle. Also, on June 30th, his fourth victim was found, and she was 65-year-old Helen Blake. Like the two previous victims, she was sexually assaulted and strangled to death with a nylon stocking. Um, However, what was different about this one was that in addition to the nylon stocking she was assaulted with, um, or sorry, uh, strangled with, a different nylon stocking as well as a bra had been found to be tied around her neck in a bow post-mortem. So they were put onto her body after she was already deceased. Um, So by this time, police started to suspect that these women all uh, had a common killer, partially because the crime scenes all look very similar. In addition, because the victims were all of similar age, they were older women. Um, and because he was leaving a signature at all the crime scenes, he was tying a bow around the women's neck. Um, despite the, um, all the signatures he was leaving behind, they had no idea who it was at this point. So they began referring to this unknown killer as the Boston Strangler. At this point, obviously the public was getting quite frightened because this was all happening near the Boston area. Uh, and it wasn't too long, unfortunately, after his fourth victim that he had striked again. So Ida Erga, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, she was 75 and she was the next victim found in relation to the Boston Strangler. On August 19th, she was found again with evidence of sexual assault and she was strangled with a nylon stocking. In addition, post-mortem, a pillowcase had been tied around her neck in a bow. After her body was found, DeSalvo had actually stopped killing for a few months, Uh, and in this time, police were canvassing all known sexual deviants in their system, so any person who had been previously convicted or uh, even accused, I believe, of a sexual assault or sexual crime, uh, they looked into. However, as previously, DeSalvo was only charged with assault and robbery, he was actually overlooked by the police. On December 5th of 1962, the killings would resume. On that day, uh, the body of Sophie Clark was found. The police were unsure at the time if the same killer was responsible for Sophie Clark. Sophie Clark, unlike the other victims, was quite young. She was only 20 years old, um, but the other signatures of the crime were quite similar. She was sexually assaulted and strangled. Um, at the time of confession, DeSalvo went into detail about a lot of the the murders, especially Sophie Clark's. He stated that uh, on this day, he had very strong sexual urges, and he went and started following around an attractive girl around Boston, and he ended up following her to her apartment, where he put on his green work suit, so back into the green man uh, scam, and then he went to her complex to try and assault her. Uh, so he knocked on her door wearing this green work suit and told her that he was a maintenance man sent by the landlord to check her pipes, but she refused to let him in. Because she refused, uh, he simply let it go, but he didn't, he only let her go. He proceeded to go next door and try again with another woman, and unfortunately, in the apartment next door was 20-year-old Sophie Clark. She answered the door And instead of this time saying he was a maintenance man, he went back to his measuring man plot and said that he was a modeling scout and he was looking for models and asked if he could measure her. Um, It's unclear whether or not she let him in, uh, but it was stated that at one point she had her back turned to him, whether that was in the doorway or in her apartment. And when she was turned back to him, that's when he attacked. After attacking her, uh, he 
Well, he sexually assaulted her, and then he strangled her and left the ligature tied around her neck in a bow. Less than a month later, on the 31st of December in 1962, 23-year-old Patricia Bissett was found in the same way as the rest. She was sexually assaulted, strangled with a nylon stocking, and it was tied in a bow. They were starting to suspect, again, that this maybe was the Boston Strangler, because despite the huge age difference between the past victims and the new victims, uh, all the other pieces of the crime were the same, and there was the same signature. After Patricia Bissett, um, there was another victim. Unfortunately, her murder was more brutal, and as they went on, they continued to get worse. She was found on March 6th in 1963. Mary Brown was 69 years old, and she was found with evidence of sexual assault like the rest, um, but she'd also been beaten with a blunt object, stabbed in the breasts with a fork, and manually strangled. So he strangled her with his hands, uh, not a ligature. And then after Mary Brown, his, his killings continued to change and progress. On May 6th in 1963, Beverly Sammons, she was 23 years old, was found stabbed in the neck four times and 22 times in the torso. Uh, it is said that the stabs in the torso looked like a uh, target, like a bullseye. Um, and she was also sexually assaulted and had two scarves uh, and one nylon stocking all tied around her neck post-mortem in a bow, like his signature. Um, do we know why he always tied bows around the necks of his victims? I never actually found anything that stated why he did so. He just did it with the first one and it, it kind of stuck for some reason. That's so weird. The next victim was found on September 6th of 1963. Her name was Evelyn Corbin and she was 58. She, like the rest, unfortunately, was sexually assaulted, but as well, there was evidence that she was forced to also perform oral sex, um, and she had been strangled with two nylon stockings as well, and those, like the rest, were tied in a bow. Next was Joanne Graff. She was 23. She was found on the 23rd of November in 1963. She was sexually assaulted, beaten with a blunt object, and then again, fatally strangled uh, with nylon stockings tied in a neat bow. In addition to the nylon stockings, uh, after she had died, he also tied a black leotard around her neck uh, with the stockings. And then his final victim of murder before being caught was Mary Sullivan. She was only 19 years old, so she was the youngest victim. She was found on January 4th of 1964. Um, she was sexually assaulted, they found, with a broom handle. Uh, she was forced to perform oral sex, and he had strangled her with a nylon stocking as well. After she died, he tied two scarves around her neck uh, in a neat bow, and then posed her on the bed uh, with her legs spread apart, and he had a handwritten sign placed at her feet that read, Happy New Year. Oh, that is incredibly random. Yeah, it's very gross yeah. to think about. Um, his crimes just seemed to progressively get a little worse, and at the very end just took a, a gross twist that was almost, almost like he was taunting the police. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. So, with all of these women being terrorized and no police leads, uh, this leads us to the question of how was he caught? Um, so... 
We assume that no other victims were killed between January and October because no bodies were found with the similar signatures. However, on October 27th of 1964, a woman whose name was never released because of privacy, uh, she had been sexually assaulted by a man who came into her home who was posing as a detective. But when she let him inside, he tied her to her bed and then assaulted her. However, before killing her, something stopped him. Uh, he then said, I'm sorry, and then he promptly left. After this encounter, she went to the police and provided a very detailed prescription of him to the police, and they made a composite sketch and released it to the public. And soon after publication, many women came forward saying that they believe they were also assaulted by this man in the picture. So... From this composite sketch, uh, police were able to compare it to other previous drawings of him that were done for break and enters for people that had their homes broken into and I guess have seen him. Um, and they promptly arrested him because he had been convicted previously of break and enters or at least charged with them. So after he was arrested uh, for suspicion of these crimes, he was put into a lineup to be identified by the victim and inevitably he was picked out. After being picked out, he didn't really hesitate. He confessed to the police that he had carried out hundreds of robberies, he had sexually assaulted multiple women, and he even stated that he was the Boston Strangler. Because this was such a massive confession, like he just confessed to hundreds of crimes, police didn't actually believe him at first, and they sent him to a psychiatric assessment center uh, at the Bridgewater State Hospital. While... So they just thought he was lying about being the Boston Strangler? Yeah, I think they believed because he was so openly admitting to so much, including these heinous crimes that have left people terrorized for the past three years, um, I think they were like, okay, no sane person would just openly tell us all of these things. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's like um, Henry Lee Lucas, I think his name was, the confession killer. He confessed to, like, hundreds and hundreds of killings, but I don't think he did any of them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a documentary on Netflix about him. Right, yeah, okay. Anyway. Yeah, so while he was at this hospital being assessed, he happened to meet another inmate who was also in for murder and was being psychiatrically assessed. Uh, this inmate's name was George Nassar. DeSalvo confessed all of his crimes to Nassar, like he did to the police, and apparently had also made a deal with this other inmate, uh, saying that uh, whichever one of them supplied information about the Boston Strangler, if there was any reward money involved, they were going to split it. And it was claimed that he had done this uh, because he'd already come to terms with the fact that he was going to prison, and he wanted to make sure that he had left behind money for his family. So... When being assessed by the psychiatrist, he, again, for a third time, confessed to the crimes, but this time in very excessive detail, including what apartments, uh, sorry, what the apartments looked like and their furniture layout, uh, what the clothing of all of the victims were wearing. It was a lot of information that only the, the perpetrator would know. Um, he had also told the psychiatrist at this time, that he was in the middle of sexually assaulting a girl when he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror and hated what he saw. So he he just apologized for it and he fled. And that actually ended up being the girl who gave the detailed description to police that led that police to DeSalvo. 
in the end, uh, the psychiatrist diagnosed him as potentially suicidal and quite clearly overtly schizophrenic. While he was at the hospital, officials wanted to try hypnosis with him because they didn't really know whether or not to trust his word because he was just diagnosed as schizophrenic. They thought he could be falsely confessing to these crimes, and they thought maybe under hypnosis he would either tell the truth or at least tell a different story than what he was telling that might be more truthful. Um, so to put him under hypnosis, they promised that he would have immunity from prosecution if he had done this. Um, but when they put him under hypnosis, he essentially told the exact same story as when he wasn't under, but this time the confessions were audio recorded. He went into great detail about all of the crimes and he said a lot of pieces of uh, detail that only the killer would know about these crimes. So, despite the fact that prosecution was pretty, pretty certain that it was him because he had way too much information, they were really reluctant to try him for the crimes of the Boston Strangler because the only evidence they actually had against him in the killings was his confession, and he was a diagnosed schizophrenic. So, they didn't really want to try him on his potentially untrustworthy testimony. So, instead of trying him for these crimes, uh, they instead chose to try him for the Green Man crimes, uh, because they did have evidence against him in that, because of the woman that was sexually assaulted, um, and then he fled and then confessed that he had sexually assaulted women. They figured they had enough there. Um, and because of this, he received a mandatory life sentence. Because he was had schizophrenia, um, his life sentence was going to be um, completed at the hospital he was assessed at. However, uh, when he was sent to prison in 1967, sent to this hospital, sorry, um, very shortly after, so in February of 1967, so he was there for a month or less, he and two other inmates escaped. And three days later, they were promptly found by police and returned to the hospital. Because of his escape, they didn't trust him to finish his life sentence in the uh, state hospital. So instead, even though he had schizophrenia, they sent him to a maximum security prison to ensure that he would never escape again. So he was sentenced uh, and sent to prison in 1967. However, he didn't end up spending that much time in prison because in November of 1973, only about six years after being incarcerated, DeSalvo was stabbed to death by another inmate in prison. And we will never, I don't know if we'll ever quite get closure for the case, because his family is still very, very adamant that he was not guilty, he was innocent. Um, but the confession was so damning and so real that they don't know who else it could have been. Uh, so in 2001, they had actually exhumed his body and compared his DNA to some of the DNA found from the sexual assault of one of the victims, um, and it didn't match. But the police concluded that it didn't match with the sexual assault, but that doesn't mean he still wasn't involved in any of the killings. Um, so they put him back in the ground, and then... I'm unsure if they kept the case open or closed, but the family continued to fight. Um, and in 2013, there were talks of re-exhuming his body, but I personally wasn't able to find anything further on whether or not this took place. Um, so that's the story of Albert DeSalvo, a.k.a. the Measuring Man, a.k.a. the Green Man, 
aka possibly the Boston Strangler. Um, he had a really hard childhood, but that doesn't, in the slightest, excuse what he did. I personally think he's guilty, but that's just me giving my opinion after all I've read. <laughs> so do they think he had an accomplice? Um, I'm actually not sure. I did read one source that the family thinks maybe he had an accomplice or maybe there was just like multiple people involved. Um, but I didn't read a lot into the current happenstance of the crime because for the most part it is closed. Most people believe he is the Boston Strangler. Um, and nonetheless, he, he was still uh, convicted of countless sexual assaults as the green man. Uh, so people, even though these were very heinous crimes, are quite content believing that he was the Boston Strangler because of his really, really detailed confession. Yeah, that, that's fair. Did they only compare his DNA to that one victim, or were there multiple that he was compared to? As far as I read, he uh, his DNA was only compared to one victim. Um, I'm pretty sure it was only one victim it was compared to. I think it might have been um, because they didn't have samples available of the rest of the victims because they had happened uh, between 1962 and 64 and he was exhumed in 2001 so they might not have kept their DNA for this long assuming that this was definitely the, the killer but I could be mistaken. Could it have been something like I think it was Andre Chikatilo where his semen was a different blood type than what he was, and that's what they used to compare. So they're like, okay, it doesn't match because of that? Or was it something different? I don't know. That's a possibility. I didn't... I haven't found anything that suggests that he had something similar to Albert DeSalvo, but I... Maybe they just never released it? Yeah, that's fair. All right. Well, thank you, Rebecca. That was very, very interesting. I did not know anything about him, so I enjoyed learning. And now, Nicole, did you want to tell us all about the science, in quotations, of forensic hypnosis? I would love to. I would first want to say that my audio is terrible this episode. I apologize. I am currently in my quarantine, and since I'm not at my own house, I don't have my mic with me. So... Sorry, but you're stuck with it, um, whoever's listening. But yeah, anyways, I'm going to kind of start off with hypnosis and then kind of switch into forensic hypnosis, if that makes sense. Um, so surprisingly, there is no legal definition of hypnosis. And although there are like several definitions, um, they all vary, and one of the main ones, and I guess the better definition of them all, is an altered state of consciousness characterized by relaxation, a heightened responsiveness to suggestion, and an increase in concentration. And for a forensic side to it, it's important to note that the definition says a heightened responsiveness to suggestion. So keep that in mind <laughs> as we go on. Um, hypnosis is seen as a way to retrieve and enhance memories, and so each person's response, though, to hypnosis will differ, and it's difficult to predict how someone's going to react to hypnosis. So, for example, like, Journey, you may enter, say, like, a deep trance-like state of relaxation, but at the same time, if you and Rebecca were going 
under, quote-unquote, at the same time, Rebecca may only become slightly re- relaxed. So it's, there's a lot of variables that can affect this. And so when you undergo hypnosis, says that you're induced into this form of relaxation and the subject will often have like I know for welcome week at university we had a hypnotist come in and do like a whole spiel and typically they'll when you're sitting down they tell you to imagine yourself like walking in a field by yourself and like with each step you become more and more relaxed or like you're going downstairs, and with each level you become more and more relaxed. So it's slowly getting you into a relaxed state. And some of the factors that I mentioned that could um, affect how hypnotized, I guess, you may be, this includes your imagination and ability to concentrate. So I was not very good at being hypnotized because I cannot concentrate for the life of me. The guy came up to me and he was like patted my shoulder because there was a whole bunch of us on stage. He patted my shoulder when I couldn't be hypnotized like the other. He's like, okay, like, thanks, but you can go off the stage now. I was like, dang it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's also the desire to cooperate is a factor that will influence it. And your previous notions about hypnosis. So if you went into it thinking, wow, I keep wanting to say hypnotist. If you think hypnosis is kind of a sham and faulty and not a science, you're less likely, most likely, you're most likely not going to be as hypnotized, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And, okay, words, I just, they sound right until I say them. That's fair. Um, but yeah, interestingly, you actually can't be hypnotized against your will. Or, like, unexpectedly, like Hollywood may suggest. Like, if you were to walk into a room and someone holds, like, a pendulum or a spinning thing, you can't just instantly become hypnotized. Um, so, there has to be a full... Qua- Sorry, go ahead. So, oops. Um, so, like, in The Mentalist, where he'll just be talking to you and then he'll, like, place his hand on your shoulder and then, bam, you're hypnotized? That just, like, doesn't work? No, it doesn't work like that. Okay. Totally fake. <laughs> there has to be like full cooperation and consent during hypnosis. Um, you have to be aware that it's happening. Like they can't trick you into it. And so when you're hypnotized, the person who is under, I guess you could say, is always in full control. So they can't be made to say or do anything against their will. Like if they don't want to say something embarrassing, they don't have to say it, even if they're being prompted to. And surprisingly, they can even lie while they're under hypnosis, which I did not know. I didn't know that either. That's so cool. Yeah, I thought it was kind of like uh, those truth serums that like movies always have, where once you do it, once you take it, you have to say everything. Um, but yeah, the subject that's being hypnotized always is in full control and has full say of what is said and what's not said. That is so cool because I definitely did not think that was the case with hypnosis. Right? I didn't either. I learned a lot. I didn't think hypnosis was very interesting um, until I'm speaking about it right now. (laughs) And so hypnosis itself actually became increasingly popular 
from the 1950s to about the early 80s, and this was to retrieve information that was once believed to, bur- to be buried like within the mind and deep within your consciousness kind of thing. So coming into the late 80s and into the early 90s, there was this so-called memory wars in America where professionals were actually arguing about memories and like how they existed in your mind, in a sense. So some believed that memories were permanent and similar to video recordings. So think of like recording a video and being able to replay it back and just see the same thing over and over again. People thought that memories were exactly like that and you could pull up a memory like a movie reel. On the other side of this, psychologists argued that memories were malleable and could change, and this was quite known in the psychology world. Like Hugo Munsterberg, he started this whole thing. A whole bunch of prominent psychologists came with the theory that, hey, your memory changes. It's very, it's affected by so many other things. So this whole movie reel idea is stupid which, yeah, it makes sense. And it was actually um, during the Second World War that hypnosis became even more popular because I guess there was a boom in psychoanalytic training and from these psychiatrists, and then there were widespread applications. I don't know if it was, like, to the soldiers or trying to, like, resolve PTSD or something like that. It didn't really specify, unfortunately. But forensic hypnosis itself emerged in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and it promoted that memory was not perfect. Oh, sorry, memory was a perfect mechanical recording, using this with the purpose that the subject, or I guess the witness of a crime, would regress, which means like going back, in a sense, to an earlier time period of yourself. So the purpose that you would regress, but only to a recent moment and to be able to replay the memory of a crime. So basically they thought that forensic hypnosis could take the witness back in time, but see everything clearly, quote, whatever, um, and know what actually happened at the crime. Interesting. Uh, It's not... Quite yeah, because have we <laughs> talked about how memory is definitely not like that? Yep. <laughs> I think we did talk about that in False Confession. Okay, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's so wrong. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It just, I, <laughs> I don't get it. Because it did go through a time period where they were like, yes, this is admissible in court. Like, it's just a way to bring back memories, to enhance memories. And now looking back at it, you're like, What? There's no, there's no science proving that. It says the exact opposite. Um, But yeah, if you want to learn about memory, go back to, I think it was the Norfolk 4 um, episode. But yes, so there was also a belief that an eyewitness would go through um, this forensic hypnotic session or hypnosis session they thought that their concentration would become heightened and then this would allow them to remember and recall more important details of the crime that they wouldn't be able to remember in their conscious state. So basically, like, thought that people could become, like, superhuman and just remember 
everything in their past. Like, I can't even remember what I ate for cereal three days ago. I don't think I ate breakfast. But, like, to have someone go under hypnosis to remember a crime that probably happened a year or more ago, asking a lot of someone. Yes, I agree. In the sense of being an eyewitness to a crime, it was also theorized that trauma can block certain memories, and this is kind of a defense mechanism to protect yourself. But with this use of forensic hypnosis, it's said to bypass this defense mechanism and tap into these repressed memories. So although it may be traumatic recounting all of these details, it would be helpful in a court setting to hopefully prosecute an individual. One of the most publicly influential figures in kind of this realm of hypnosis, his name, he was a psychiatrist, and his name was William J. Bryan. And he had become an experienced hypnotist during the Second World War. I couldn't really find or, to be honest, didn't go great into great detail about his life because it wasn't about him. Probably should have because I don't know what he did during the Second World War. But he became a hypnotist. He testified in a court case in 1957, and this kind of jump-started the whole legal use of hypnosis. And after this, once it started to kind of gain traction, if you wanted to pursue an interest in forensic hypnosis, you could actually attend lectures, demonstrations, you could go to conferences, or even attend extended training courses that would be over a weekend that this psychiatrist... um, Brian taught in Los Angeles at his Los Angeles Institute. He created an institute for hypnosis. Yeah. I love that they were extensive workshops, but they were a weekend. A weekend. (laughs) And that qualified them. Yeah, exactly. And so another character, his name was, character I say, person, I guess, F. Lee Bailey. He was... I've been reading too many books. One of the most prominent litigators in America, and he was actually an attorney in the case of Albert DeSalvo. So this is kind of how it ties into this case. And Bailey himself had attended one of Brian's forensics uh, hypnosis courses. And so after he attended this course, he thought, hey, it would be so great if I hired Brian as an expert witness and get some information from Albert DeSalvo and negotiate a guilty plea for DeSalvo. So he said, this is a great idea, hypnosis, it's going to work. He was quite the actor, apparently. He put on a very dramatic and public hypnosis session um, with DeSalvo, and new information and details about the crime were brought up during this session, he was recalling information in this state, and he, DeSalvo apparently described these details in both his own voice, but also the, his supposed victim's voice. So while he was hypnotized and saying information, he was his victim saying things that happened. I don't know if it was like a conversation him and his victim had, and he was like, switching parts, kind of. Um, But yeah, he changed voices during this public hypnosis session. 
That's whack. <laughs> yeah, that is very weird. Right? And I don't know if it was all an act because I tried to be hypnotized and it didn't work. I don't know if he was just kind of playing along. Like, there was no way to quantitatively measure if you were hypnotized or not. Or if you were to say, yeah, you are, no, you're not. It was just kind of a, "Mm, it seems like it. Which is not the best when you're putting people behind bars. I'll say that. Amen. Yeah. And during this whole time, this whole dramatic scene, no one bothered to raise any concerns about the psychiatrist's suggestive questioning or the reliability of this uh, this technique, which I find interesting. Yeah, we love to see it. Love it so much. And after this, so in 1968, forensic hypnosis training institutes like Brian's were established in Los Angeles, New York, and several other cities um, because the science was becoming increasingly more admissible in courts, unfortunately. The science. Yes, the science. (laughs) And so here, again, police could attend weekend sessions or they could arrange for a trainer to come to their department and teach forensic hypnosis. Reliable. But it's good. Once you have a weekend of hypnosis under your belt, you're set. You're off to the races. Yeah, who needs a four-year degree when you can have a weekend? Exactly. I wish university was like that. Yeah, we are doing this so wrong. I know. Let's go back to 1968 and become forensic hypnotists. We make so much money, it's fine. Um, Seems like an easy gig. Yeah. (laughs) With all of these uh, institutes being created, this also... (laughs) I laugh at this. This also led to the establishment of the Law Enforcement Hypnosis Institute. Law Enforcement Hypnosis Institute. So the whole. So do they hypnotize police, or do they teach police to hypnotize? I feel like yeah. both, because they trained police officers how to hypnotize. So I don't know if it was to become common practice during like interrogation technique, like as an interrogation technique, because originally it was just like psychiatrists or psychologists that would hypnotize people. But now thousands of police officers in the 70s are hypnotizing people. Yeah, I see no flaws. <laughs> None at all. <laughs> What? <laughs> yes, that's solid practice. Okay. Exactly. And so this had created a new generation of experts that still continued to practice hyp- hypnosis to this day. Fun fact. Um, kind of just as like a side quick story, in 1968, a victim identified her assailant, but it was only after her hypnosis session that she was able to identify him. And this testimony was allowed since it was seen as a memory aid device, which kind of just makes you think of, like, hearing aids. But for your mind, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why it was allowed in court. But it did. It happened. 
um, by the 70s, forensic hypnosis was becoming a conventionally accepted tool to use in pretrials, but this caused further debate and people opposing this decision um, because of how your memory works and how malleable it is. People were saying that this shouldn't be allowed, which, very fair, I would be on that side. It should not have been allowed. But in the beginning, courts went back and forth on deciding whether um, forensic hypnosis should be allowed in court. Many states made it inadmissible, but others said, hey, why not? Let's let it into the courts. But they adopted one of three positions for the most part. So these positions were, let the jury decide how reliable this science is. Science, I say in quotes. Let the trial judge decide or just use safeguards. And as we talk about, I think, in Norfolk for all about safeguards, um, most of the time they aren't useful at all. So there was that. And even with these safeguards, several problems arise with the use of this forensic hypnosis. Shocker, I know. So these included recovered memories as being seen as like incomplete or based on suggestive questioning. So the memories that were remembered weren't real or that they just didn't make sense. The beliefs and prejudices of the eyewitness that um, these could influence the initial memory and or how it's interpreted during recall. Um, so whatever your mindset is on something going in, that could affect how you remember something, even if you remembered it differently the first time. There's also something called memory hardening, which is when memories brought forward by hypnosis um, seem so real that the subject would develop false confidence in its accuracy. So that it would become impossible to determine whether this memory was real or not. Um, yeah, which is great. Good for being an eyewitness testifying on a stand. So is that kind of similar to when you have a dream and you're like, okay, wait, that felt really real. Was that a dream or did that actually happen? Pretty much, but different in the sense that you think it's real um, and say like, you thought 100% your, re your dream happened in real life, whatever, whatever. But then if someone were to tell you about real life, you would be like, oh, I, I don't know. Because you think your fake dream is real. You wouldn't be able to differentiate between what's real and what's not. If that makes sense. Okay. I don't know if that explained it at all. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay, because I can see your face. So like, I don't, I'll be honest, I, don't I think lost so. focus about halfway through. Okay, that's fine. You know what? <laughs> that's okay. You just so think... We'll say yes. Okay. Continue on. Okay, awesome. Um, there's also what might be called hypermnesia or confabulation. And so confabulation is when the eyewitness may fill in missing gaps of their memory with false information. And so this would create like an abnormally and weirdly complete memory because oftentimes 
just from personal experience, trying to remember things, it's a little choppy. You don't know when, like, something happened before or after. But this way, it's, like, the perfect linear memory. Everything fits into place, and it just is weirdly complete. And it's believed that hypnosis will enhance accurate memories, but in actuality, there's little evidence favoring this claim. So while people may be able to produce information during these hypnosis sessions, it's not necessarily accurate given that the underlying process of hypnosis is involving imagination. So that's a thumbs up for science. Um, and so in early cases, like I said, hypnosis generally wasn't accepted, but as it was leading into the 70s, courts became increasingly more willing to admit this evidence, but it had to be on certain terms and certain procedures had to be followed. So these included like, it's called a per se, a rule of per se inadmissibility, a rule of per se admissibility, the safeguard approaches, and what's called a totality of circumstances approach. So the per se inadmissibility approach was what the U.S. followed for decades. And this basically means that any post-hypnotic testimony is automatically excluded. And this is regardless of the facts, the circumstances of the case, it's just kind of thrown out. And so from my understanding, the rule of per se admissibility would mean that it's just all considered. They don't throw any of it out, which is shocking. I don't know why that would be a procedure to follow. Um, safeguards, like we mentioned, and the totality of circumstances, I assume, I couldn't really find much on it, was plus, I didn't do much research on that part. Um, realizing now I should have found a definition for it. Um, my understanding is that they take into account everything, i.e. the totality of circumstances, they just consider it all. And then they'll judge whether hypnosis is required, whether it would help, whether it wouldn't, whether it's not a science, because it's not. Um, and so I don't know if we've talked about it in other episodes, but they used... Um, the Fry standard to begin with to decide whether this testimony should be admissible. And so this basically said that if the science isn't generally accepted as reliable in the relevant community, like the hypnosis community, <laughs> then it wouldn't be allowed. And so after this Fry standard, you get into like the Mohan criteria and it just kind of narrows who is allowed to testify as an expert witness. While hypnosis was used in courts, and until January of 2021, Texas was still allowing <laughs> hypnosis evidence, <laughs> um, scientific research overwhelmingly suggests that hypnosis does not increase the accuracy of memories that eyewitnesses recall and remember reliably. So yes, you can recall and remember things, but not reliably. And January of 2021, <laughs> it was still that being used. That baffles me. 
Like, yeah, it baffles me that it's still being used and it's 2021. And not so much that it was like it's it still shouldn't be exactly. Not so much that it, like it's still being used, but it was so easily being used. Like before, you had to go through so many safeguards and so many criteria needs to be met, whatever, through Mohan and stuff, at least in Canada with Mohan. Um, they were just like, mm, yep, hypnosis, that sounds good. Let's get you in there. And in January 2021, they were like, oh, maybe it's not reliable. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah, you're right. Good yeah. job. It took them way too long to figure that out. Way too long. And... When there are actually effects from hypnosis, it's been shown that they can actually increase false, distorted, and or fabricated memories. Because again, hypnosis is based through imagination for a lot of it and concentration. So this would make sense. And so as the controversy of the use of forensic hypnosis continued, any new information brought forward during a session, if it was still done, say January 2021 in Texas, if they still did a hypnosis session, they would also need evidence that would corroborate, corrob, I can't say this word, corroborated, corroborated, is that it? It sounds so wrong, with their session. And so this was kind of designed to elicit additional leads and increase the reliability of such testimony. So like if they did get new information, they had to go out and find something that would corroborate it. And so any memories that are uncorroborated, should have just chose a synonym for this word, <laughs> they can lead to be um they can lead to wrongful imprisonments of innocent people all too easily, which we've learned. Um, and there are a couple smaller cases that I want to mention too that affected kind of the course of forensic hypnosis. Um, they're kind of on both sides of it. In 1978, a victim of an assault with a knife couldn't remember anything of the attack at all until she was hypnotized. And while hypnotized, she said her attacker was her ex-husband but she wasn't 100% confident. Surprisingly, this testimony was not allowed in court, thankfully, since the defense argued that the se session was very suggestion. Wow. I am so tongue-tied today. Argued that the session was very suggestive and it had tainted her memory, which, yes, memory can be very suggestive or suggestible. And so after this case, restrictive guidelines for using hypnosis to, quote, like, refresh, unquote, eyewitness testimony were put into place. So after this case, they decided that a psychiatrist or psychologist trained and who had experience with hypnosis must be involved in the session. They have to be the ones providing the hypnosis, however you say it. They have to be independent from either party. So they can't be working for the defense and they can't be working for the crown. Any information the witness says while being hypnotized must be written down and recorded. The session itself has to be video or audio taped. No one other than the expert and the witness should be present during a session. And any pre-hypnosis memories the witness had 
had to be recorded before the hypnosis began. So then they'd compare like the notes before the hypnosis session, the notes after, see where it differed, all of that jazz. So another case that was kind of a catalyst that actually inspired the use of forensic hypnosis was the Chowchilla case, I believe it's called. This makes me laugh because white privilege. So three wealthy boys in their early 20s, they, uh, their parents decided to reduce their allowances, whether it be weekly or monthly allowances, and they were not happy about this. So they decided they needed a way to make a lot of money quickly to keep up with their extravagant lifestyle. Makes sense, right? So they decided to, they made this plan to hijack a school bus, hide all of the passengers in a safe and secure location, demand $5 million ransom from the state of California, retrieve the money, and then just let the hostages go all within 24 hours. Sounded like a great plan. And they thought nothing would happen. No, no, these three rich boys in their 20s were like, this is good, this is great. This is an easy way to make some money. More people need to get into kidnapping and ransom. Right, I don't know, I don't know why I've never thought of this. Could have paid my tuition. Um, so <laughs> in July 1976, they did just that. Well, they attempted. They pretended their van was broken down on kind of like this back road, and they waved down a school bus. The men boarded the bus armed with a shotgun, wearing nylon stockings over the faces, which I never really understood, because unless they're a black nylon, you can still see the face. It's not quite distorted, but you can still see the face. Um, they kidnapped 26 children and the bus driver, they brought the bus itself to a drainage slough, and then they continued to drive the victims around in their van for 11 hours. They got tired of this and eventually brought the kids and the bus driver to a quarry where they put them into a buried van, I guess. I didn't really understand that part. With a little bit of food and water as well and a couple mattresses. Okay. Um, so they left the victims stacked the mattresses, who, the victims stacked the mattresses, they were able to escape because they could reach a latch on the ceiling after 16 hours in the truck. So I assume this is five hours after driving, like 11 driving, five to make 16 in the truck. So they escaped, went to the police, and the police used forensic hypnosis to see if they could enhance the bus driver's memory and while under hypnosis, he was apparently able to remember the license plate of the van that was used for kidnapping. And this actually led to the capture of the three suspects. And to make it even better, the kidnappers weren't able to phone in their ransom call since all the phone lines were tied up because the families and media were calling, searching for their children. Because in 1976, the phones weren't like they are now, and everything was busy, so they couldn't even get their five million dollars, all for nothing. But yeah, that, right? That was kind of like one of the cases where they saw the potential in forensic hypnosis. Um, I just think he has a good memory, 
but I don't know. And so he remembered, obviously, the license plate correctly. I guess. I, like, he must have. I can't imagine remembering. Like, as a bus driver, do you think you need to be able to remember license plates quickly because you're in charge of so many kids and because there's, like, stuff could happen on the road and you may need to report something? Like, that would be the only reason I would think he could remember it so well with hypnosis. I can't even remember my own life. Yeah. Like, so, <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. Um, but, yeah, he correctly remembered it. I don't know if he provided any other detail. I couldn't, didn't find much about that. Um, and while... Better than Texas, but not great. In 2007, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that any memories and new evidence obtained through forensic hypnosis should not be used in criminal cases. But with that, um, it doesn't state that it's inadmissible. It just says that it should not be used. Um, So the should part should not kind of raise an alarm for me because I don't know if they're still kind of getting away with it in some. I doubt it, but they should have made it a hard no. And, of course... Yeah, it'll kind of be at, like, the discretion of the judge. Yeah. And this decision was made because, obviously, such evidence is not, quote, sufficiently reliable, unquote, in the court of law. And... Kind of just to end things off, something funny that I read too, I wasn't really sure where to include it, Um, but at one point when they were like talking about when professionals were kind of discussing memories, I think it was during like the memories war that I was reading, um, they said that they portrayed memories as, quote, entities lying within the body and waiting to be extracted much as an anatomical sample or organ might be removed and saved for display before the jury, end quote. So basically, they don't consider memories or like hypnosis, memory, testimony as testimony. They see it as like a physical piece of evidence that the jury can see and present to the jury and consider it that way. I just, it doesn't make sense. If I can't hold it, it's not physical. Right? (laughs) Thank you. Like, it's very different to be like, here is a punctured liver of a stabbed victim. Here is a hypnotic memory that was (laughs) brought out. Like, they're just very different. But, yeah, that's my spiel about hypnosis. I didn't realize how passionate I hated hypnosis until I started talking about it. So... (laughs) I apologize. No, thank you. That was fantastic. I definitely learned a lot. And I wish we had a chance to explore it more in our psych and law class, because I feel like it would have been a really, really interesting conversation. Well, there's a bunch more to it as well. Um, I dropped out of advanced psych and law, but I know, Rebecca, you took it, and you guys did, like, a whole lecture on hypnosis and, like, Canada, right? Like, with a RV Trocum or whatever his name is? Yeah, we did. It. Uh, we go a lot more in-depth in advanced psych and law. It's very interesting. And if 
everyone should know about it. It's just a very interesting topic. Yeah. So the RV Trochim, Trochim, whatever, his case was the one where Supreme Court of Canada in 2007 was like, maybe we shouldn't let this evidence in. And that was the huge catalyst for Canadian law. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nicole, and thank you, Rebecca. That was a very, very interesting episode. Um, Our next episode, we are going to talk about female serial killers to kind of switch it up. Uh, We're going to talk about the cases of Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham, who were dubbed the Lethal Lovers. And then we're going to kind of examine why there are so few female serial killers and kind of what makes them special. So it won't necessarily be a science, but it should still be fairly interesting. And I have a joke for you guys. It's pretty weak, but uh, I'm going to say it anyways. (laughs) Don't sell yourself short. It's going to be great. Okay, well, you let me know. (laughs) Okay. Okay, what do you call a hypnotist that works with wealthy children during the summer? I don't know. An air conditioner. Air spelled H-E-I-R. Oh. Oh, my God. I was like, (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) That makes sense. (gasps) That's funny. Yeah, it's kind of weak. Play on words. I just um, don't get. Jokes just go right over my head sometimes, so that's okay. All right, Rebecca, where can our listeners find us? Our listeners can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics, uh, Twitter at WT Forensics PC, or you can go to our website, whatthefrensics.ca, where you can contact us on our contact forum. Alternatively, you can email us at whatthefrensics at gmail.com. We love to hear from you guys, and we love your suggestions and comments and all of that fun stuff. So if you have anything to say, then we'd love to hear it. Okay, thank you. This has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.